want to begin our exposition this morning with a little quiz. It's a one-question quiz. <coughs> I'm going to describe a nation for you, and I want you to tell me what nation I'm talking about, okay? This nation used to be God's people. It was committed as a country to the God of the Bible. In fact, many would argue that this nation itself was founded upon faith, upon the principles and values of Scripture. And so God blessed and God flourished this nation, but as the years turned into centuries, the comforts associated with their prosperity began to deceive and distract people, and the nation drifted from their original passion for the Lord. Foreign, worldly influences began to creep in, and the people were led astray into idolatry as well. And today, this nation appears to have totally turned its back on the Lord, preferring darkness to the light, and has even become, in many ways, hostile to the the true faith. Now, what nation am I talking about? If you said 21st America, it would be right. If you said 1st century Samaria, you would also be right. And that is the premise of this message this morning. This morning we're continuing our study through the book of Acts, and we come to chapter 8 and a turning point in the story of the advancement of the gospel to all the nations. And the question for both the disciples, the apostles, the deacons, the, the church in the first century and the church in the 21st century today in different ways, for them it was, is the gospel for non-Jews? For us, is, is the gospel for outsiders? Is it for outsiders? In chapter 1, Jesus commissioned his followers to be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then in chapter 2, we saw the Holy Spirit descend on the church, fill them with power for that job. And in chapters 3 through 6, they started doing it. They're preaching the gospel and working miracles in Jesus' name, and the church is spreading like wildfire. But then we saw last week in chapter 7, not everyone was so excited about it and persecution of the church began to ramp up as well. And Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was killed for the faith in chapter 7. And now as chapter 8 opens for us this morning, we read that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So what started with a spark in Stephen's death is now being fanned into the flames by especially a guy named Saul of Tarsus, And the church that had been growing like gangbusters in Jerusalem is now scattered, verse 1. They're scattered. They were all scattered throughout the regions of where? Judea and Samaria. The very same regions that Jesus had told them they were going to go be witnesses for him back in chapter 1. Skip Heitzig says this about persecution. He says, if you're an Acts 1-8 Christian, you should expect to be an Acts 8-1 Christian as well. If you're faithfully witnessing for Christ, then you should expect to be persecuted for Christ as a result. Jesus promised as much, you remember, in John 15, 20. He said, if they persecuted me, and you look anything like me, and you're preaching me, you will be persecuted also. And as we put a bow on Stephen's story from last week, we hear verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Again, don't want to dwell on this point, but 
simple, easy, quick reminder, good reminder for us, just practically, to mourn. It's good to mourn, to, to grieve, to lament our lost loved ones, especially, especially Christians. Are they in a better place? Yes, praise God. Praise God for the hope of heaven. And so we do not grieve as those who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, and yet we still grieve. Right? We grieve with hope. Devout men made great lamentation over Stephen. Jesus wept over Lazarus. This is good. This is right for the church to grieve. But, verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And we are going to pick up Saul's story two weeks from now on Easter Sunday. But this morning, we're going to focus on the spread of the gospel to Samaria. Samaria was the region located in Middle Palestine between Galilee and the north and Judea and the south. You may remember from Old Testament history that the nation of Israel had existed for roughly a century as a united monarchy under King Saul, David, and Solomon. But after Solomon, around the year 930 BC, the kingdom was split into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, Solomon had built his temple, guess where? In the south. The capital city, he built the capital in Jerusalem. And so over time, the northern Israelites, they decided, well, we're going to just build our own temple. And we're going to make our own capital, and guess where? Samaria. And the division be- between the southern Jews and the northern Israelites grew over time, especially after the year 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom was invaded and conquered by Assyria, and the best and brightest of the Israelites were exiled to Assyria. But those left behind in Samaria were pushed to integrate, to assimilate into their new Assyrian overlords' culture. This was a common practice in antiquity that conquering empires would uh, use to keep vassal states in submission, forced assimilation. It is much more difficult to subjugate a people who still have their own distinct identity, language, food, music, currency, culture, religion, gods. And so Assyria went so far as to send some of their own citizens into Israel to infiltrate and indoctrinate. And over time, the Israelites began to adopt many of the aspects of Assyrian culture as their own, even blending, syncretizing their worship of Yahweh with the worship of Ishtar and Ashur, the gods of Assyria. And the Israelites began intermarrying and having babies with these Assyrian transplants, giving birth to a new half-breed race of people called Samaritans. And in the eyes of the southern Jews, who would also later be conquered and exiled by the Babylonians in the 6th century BC, but who for the most part, Jews refused to assimilate and lose, compromise their Jewish identity, in their eyes, the Samaritans were sellouts. They were filthy mudbloods, apostates. Now, I share all of that history with you because the whole premise of this sermon is going to be In many ways, in many ways, I think 21st century America is much like 1st century Samaria. A once favored, God-blessed, some might even say divinely ordained nation. We can debate about 
whether or not you know, the majority of the founders were Christian or were they really deists, we can debate about how much of the Bible truly shaped the writing of our Constitution in this country. But what is beyond debate is that regardless of whether or not America may have once been accurately described as a Christian nation, we are not that any longer. The most recent polls show that while 63% of Americans still self-identify as Christian, that's down, by the way, 12% in just the last decade, 63% self-identify as Americans. As soon as you ask them one simple follow-up question, do you believe you will go to heaven solely by confessing your sins and embracing Jesus as your Savior? That number plummets to 33%. You know, like the gospel, the actual gospel. Do you believe the actual gospel? What makes you a person a Christian? 33%. Only one-third of America even professes to believe the biblical gospel. To say nothing of how many of them have actually been born again. Uh, to say nothing of how many of them, it, it's more than just head knowledge, it's heart transformation. And so much like Samaria, over time, most Americans began to notice these new foreign gods in the surrounding culture. Gods like mammon, wealth, success, status, comfort, entertainment, sex, and of course, the most popular God of all in our country today, self. The God of self. Have you seen the new ad for Nair, the hair removal product line? Their tagline says it all. Worship yourself. There's your golden calf. Here are your gods, America that led you out of slavery. It's you. You don't even need to construct a, a, an idol anymore. Just find a mirror. But here's the question for you and me this morning, church. How will we respond? How will we respond living in such a nation with ads like this? that People buy <laughs> the product. That sells. Self sells. I mean, at least the Jews could avoid the Samaritans. Mostly. They would take the long road to get from Galilee in the north down to Judah in the south to avoid having to travel through Samaria. Everyone except Jesus, of course. And Jesus went out of his way to go deep into the heart of Samaria just to have a conversation with a woman at a well to offer her living water, eternal life. So the question for you and me this morning is the same question for Jesus' followers 2,000 years ago, will we go? Will we be like Jesus? Will we be like Philip? Will we go even to the Samaritans all around us, or will we, like the Pharisees, with upturned noses, avoid them at all costs for the sake of our church's perceived purity? Well, that's just the first question that we're going to get confronted with this morning. I've got five more for you from Acts chapter 8, so we should get going. Would you stand with me? Out of respect for the reading of God's word. We'll be in Acts chapter 8. We'll pick up the story in verse 4 and go all the way through verse 25 together. <clears throat> be reading from the ESV. Words will be on the screen in front. We'd love to give you a Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible, this is the info bar. We'll give you a Bible. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before the Lord. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. God, I pray now, just as you inspired these words 2,000 years ago, would you once again, through the power of your Holy Spirit, inspire the, ins the interpretation and the application of your word in our hearts and in our lives this week. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If Jesus' followers were going to be effective witnesses for him in Samaria in the first century, if you and I are going to be effective witnesses for Christ here in our own modern-day Samaria, 21st century America, there are six questions that we need to ask ourselves as a church. And we're going to see the church in Acts answer all six of these in these 25 short verses, chapter 8. Will we go... Will we show? Will they believe? Will we confirm? Will we safeguard? And will we persevere? All right? Let's walk through each in turn this morning. Number one, will we go? This is the most important question of all, as I already mentioned. Will we go? Will we be faithful, obedient in taking the gospel where Jesus has commanded us to take it even if it means going to difficult places, even if it means going to places we'd honestly rather not go. This story of Jesus calling his disciples to Samaria should be reminiscent 
if you're familiar with the Bible, to God's calling of the prophet Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites in the Old Testament. You remember how Jonah answered that calling? He boarded the first ship leaving the opposite direction for Tarshish, going west. Opposite direction God had called him, and it didn't work out so well for Jonah, did it? Not Philip, not Philip this morning. You remember Philip from two Sundays ago. He was one of the seven Hellenist deacons chosen by the church. But like Stephen last week, who proved that evangelism isn't just for the experts, the apostles, the pastors, but who therefore deacon, Stephen deaconed not just the widow's tables that he had been commissioned to deacon, he deaconed God's word by boldly proclaiming the gospel even unto death. So too this morning, Philip is obedient to his calling. So much so that by chapter one, we're going to hear Philip has earned himself a nickname. Anybody know Philip's nickname? Philip the evangelist. And in verses 4 and 5, we read, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And thus, the gospel arrives in Samaria. We should also note who didn't go to Samaria. Who didn't go? The apostles, we hear. Why? I think because the apostles knew that they were actually in more danger by staying put in Jerusalem, the epicenter of the church's persecution. This is exemplary, sacrificial leadership from the apostles. They risked their lives to stay put and keep preaching amidst the persecution. And again, I I can't help but be reminded, think about this morning, our own Mark Hinderlaw in that. But we must also commend Philip here for his faithfulness in spite of all the reasons not to go to Samaria, that mongrel nation of half-breeds of whom the Jewish rabbis used to say, he who eats the bread of the Samaritans is as he who eats swine's flesh, abominable. A popular prayer in those days was, O Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. That's how they would pray to end their services. That's how hated the Samaritans were by the Jews. That's, you know, there's a lot of hatred, I think, coming out of the American church these days for our surrounding culture. And to be sure, there's a lot going on out there that we in here should be very concerned about. But we need to ask ourselves this morning, what is the answer? What's the church's answer to that? Is it to withdraw? Is it to boycott? Boycott Disney? Hashtag. I'm not going to tell you this morning not to boycott Disney. I'm just saying if you want to be consistent about boycotting every company that espouses any unbiblical values or beliefs, you're going to find it very difficult to survive in America today. Because brothers and sisters, we are living in the heart of Samaria. Our country is all but fully syncretized. But here's something interesting for us to consider this morning as a church. Have you ever heard of the Essenes? The Essenes were a popular separatist sect of Judaism in the first century who became increasingly concerned with the syncretism, 
the assimilation that they saw not only coming from the Samaritans, but from their own fellow Jews as well. They saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees out there compromising their beliefs, orthodoxy, in order to peacefully coexist with and actually profit from a relationship with Rome, their first century overlords. And so you know what the Essenes did? They left. They boycotted Rome, and they boycotted even their own people, the Jews. Jewish assimilation, they boycotted so hard that they actually left. They exiled themselves out of town to the caves of Qumran, and they lived in their own little separatist, puritist community. Now, why do I bring up the Essenes? To remind you that Jesus wasn't an Essene. He wasn't. And that Jesus didn't commission his people, his church, his followers to be Essenes. He didn't bestow upon us, church, the gift, the power of the Holy Spirit so that we could all just stick to the safety of our little insular, bubble-wrapped, sterile Christian communities. And I use that word sterile purposely. I like it because sterile can mean free of germs, but it can also mean impotent incapable of reproducing. And you know what? Those two things go hand in hand when it comes to the church. If you are so concerned with being unstained by any of the pollutants of the world that you stick to your little bubble-wrapped Christian communities, you'll be, you'll be sterile. You'll be totally impotent, fruitless. Church, Jesus calls us to be light and salt in a dark and decaying world. And he says, who lights a, 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 a light and then hides it under a bushel basket? You know, salt's good for nothing unless it's pressed into the meat that it's supposed to be preserving. We are called to be in the culture, but not of the world. Would Jesus boycott Disney? I don't know. He might just buy a season pass and hang out every day in the theme park with a t-shirt that reads, I love you on the front, and can we talk on the back? Number two, will we show? Will we show the world the gospel not just in word, but in tangible actions? We've seen this recurring theme throughout Acts now of Christians, a.k.a. little Christ, following in their Savior's footsteps who came not only preaching the good news and meeting people's spiritual needs, but working miracles and healing to meet their physical needs as well. So too, Philip here not only preaches in word, but he performs signs, verse 6. Verse 7, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, many who were paralyzed or lame were healed by Philip. So Philip's gospel was not only proclaimed in word, it was attested in action. To attest means to give proof or evidence of, to manifest or bear witness to, to certify. The truth of the gospel that we preach must be attested in power. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. Is that true of us this morning, church? For Philip, and in the case of the Samaritans, it was the power to heal and to exercise, to cast out demons. There was a need for exorcism. We're going to discover in verses 9 through 11 because the Samaritans had strayed so far from a pure worship of God that they had become caught up in sorcery and the dark magic of this, this man, Simon Magus, the magician. And Old Testament law was clear that any kind of dabbling in the occult, sorcery, witchcraft, divination, fortune-telling, astrology, 
Ouija boards, whatever. It's strictly forbidden biblically because it's an open door to possible demonic influence. And the Bible, by the way, does not deny that there is real power in such practices. It's just demonic power, satanic, occult, dark power, which makes the significance of the exorcism here, Philip's power to cast out these spirits all the more remarkable. Interesting note here, you won't find a single exorcism in the Old Testament. There are no exorcisms in the Bible until Jesus shows up on the scene. And no doubt there was an explosion of demonic activity when Jesus shows up in opposition to Jesus in vain, of course. But we see here that that power of exorcism was not unique to Jesus. He actually shared it with his followers, Mark 16, 17. He said, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. Now, maybe you haven't performed many exorcisms lately, cast out many demons. Maybe you haven't even performed miraculous healings lately. But the principle here that our proclamation of the gospel in word should be attested in deed in power, in action, that principle still stands for us today, church. Y'all know how I feel about St. Francis of Assisi's famous, terrible quote that we should preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, okay, use words. The more biblical rendering would be preach the gospel at all times, necessarily using words, because if you ain't using words, you ain't preaching the gospel, and in whatever ways possible, back it up with your actions. Back it up with power, with deed, with the Holy Spirit. Because what is true of faith in James chapter 2 is equally true of the propagation of that faith, the multiplication of that faith. We could say the same thing. Evangelism without works is dead. It's useless. Do our actions speak as loudly as our words? Number three, will they believe? You'll notice that this is the only one of the six evangelistic questions we're asking that we are not the subject of the sentence. They are. We asked, will we go, will we show, but now we ask, will they believe? The gospel arrived, the gospel was attested, and now the gospel is accepted in Samaria in verses 9 through 13. In spite of their former idolatry, their, even their occult, demonic idolatry, the gospel is accepted and believed. Samaria must have seemed like the most impossible, impenetrable soil for the seed of the gospel. <clears throat> when Philip got to town, from the least to the greatest, everyone in town, they are all worshiping this man, Simon, a sorcerer, as God in the flesh. That's what they say in verse 10. This man is the power of God that is called great. I didn't say this man has the power of God. I said this man is the power of God, like the same thing Jesus claimed of himself. He's God in the flesh. We might rightly label Simon an antichrist, insidious idolatry. But, but, verse 12, when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized. And verse 13, even Simon himself 
believed and was baptized. Praise God. Simon's conversion here. It reminds me of that beautiful line from that beautiful hymn that we sing here. Jesus, there's no one like you. We sing, there is no sinner beyond the infinite stretch of Christ's mercy. Do we believe that this morning? There is no sinner beyond the infinite stretch of Christ's mercy. Not even a false teaching, sorceress, demonic, antichrist like Simon the magician. Not even you. Not even me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved even a wretch like you, like me. If Philip had used many of the evangelistic strategies that we teach in the church these days about how to identify a person of peace, target specifically just those people in whom God's Spirit appears to already be at work, softening their hearts and then partnering with the Holy Spirit in these hearts with fertile soil for the seed of the gospel, he never would have preached in Samaria. He never would have gone to Samaria. He certainly wouldn't have wasted any time preaching to Simon the magician. If Philip had read Jesus' parable of the sower from Mark chapter 4, and if his takeaway, if what he exposited and gleaned from from Jesus' parable of the sower, was that some people's hearts are hard, like the road, and other hearts are, are okay, like rocky soil, and other soil seems to be good, but then... You know, as soon as it, it, the seed sprouts up, later thorns come in and kill it. But then there's the good soil. And our job as evangelists is to look for the good soil and s- strategically plant there. If Philip had done that, he never would have gone to Samaria. But friends, Philip knew the point of that parable is that the faithful sower scatters seed everywhere. Reread the parable. He throws it on the path. He throws it in the rocky soil. He throws it amongst the thorns. He's reckless and just liberal in his scattering of the seed in every kind of soil because the good sower knows his job isn't to grow the crop. That's God's job. 1 Corinthians 3.6, Paul said, I planted Apollo's water, but God gave the growth. Paul's job, my job, your job, Our job, church, is simply to sow, to preach, to plant, and then pray and trust God with the growth. So how do we answer question number three here? Will they believe? Well, on the one hand, we can't. We can't answer it because only God knows the hearts of the unbelievers to whom you and I are called to go and preach and pray. And yet, on the other hand, Here's Jesus' promise. I will build my church. If you're faithful to do your part, I will build my church. I'm going to be faithful, Jesus says. I'll build my church. God promises my word shall not return to me void. The apostle Paul encourages us in due season we will reap if we do not give up. If we're faithful to do our part and preach and plant and pray, just keep sowing. Just keep sowing. Because if God can save a murderer like Paul, if God can save a sorcerer like Simon, if God can save a wretch like you and like me, you tell me this morning, who can't he save? 
Who in your life has a heart that's it's just too hard? Soil's just too hard for an omnipotent God to touch and transform with his power and his grace and his love. Just keep sowing and praying. Number four, will we confirm? Will we confirm once they've believed in the gospel that they've truly believed the true gospel? This is an interesting and important point that the gospel gets authenticated in Samaria. To authenticate means to establish as genuine. Verses 14 through 17 here, they trip a lot of Christians up. You get a lot of the second baptism theology coming out of Pentecostalism argued from this passage. Do we need to pull Brian Loeb's back here, up here on stage or, or, or Teddy or, or Risa who got baptized in the 9 o'clock service? Do we need to pull them up back, back here and, and lay hands on them so they can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit now that they've been water baptized? Short answer is no. Here's the long answer. I found uh, my study Bible's explanation helpful here. We all need a good study Bible. This was a unique transitional period in which confirmation by the apostles was necessary to verify, authenticate, the inclusion of a new group of people into the life of the church. Because of the animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritans, it was essential for the Samaritans to receive the Spirit in the presence of the leaders of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, for the purpose of maintaining the unity of the church. And then it adds, the delay also revealed the Samaritans' need to come under apostolic authority. Now, while it was unique, transitional period, and while the church today can no longer claim apostolic authority, if you go visit another church and the pastor starts calling himself apostle this and that, run as fast as you can in the other direction, that's when you board the ship to Tarshish. And yet, I would argue biblically that it is still important today for the church to confirm a person's testimony of faith in the gospel. That is our job as the church. This is part of why the church is, is Jesus' design for the church, the community of faith. To the best of our ability, our admittedly fallible ability is to discern a person's credible testimony of faith to authenticate that testimony. I believe that's at least part of what Jesus is pointing to in Mark 16 when he references the power of the keys. I will give you, the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I believe that's at least part of what we do here at West Hills when we baptize people, when we admit people into church membership, like we will here in in three weeks, is we are authenticating, confirming, validating what God has already done in their hearts. We're we're not saving them. God's already done that, we think. We're confirming it. Jonathan Lehman uses this, I think, helpful analogy for the church. He says, we're like an embassy. Your true citizenship belongs in heaven, but you're not in heaven. You're living here in a fallen world as exiles, as sojourners. So as long as you're here, This church serves as an embassy, an outpost of heaven. And baptism and church membership then serve like your passport, confirmation of citizenship. And so church, 
confirmation is important. Some of you will say, well, isn't it enough for me to simply believe in Jesus in my own heart? And I think the biblical answer to you would be enough for what? Enough to get into heaven? I mean, if Brian Loeb's had died at 9 o'clock this morning before getting baptized, well, Jesus said, sorry, I, I don't see the baptismal certificate. No, of course not. It's by grace you've been saved through faith in Christ alone. So no baptism or membership certificates necessary, but is it enough to fulfill all righteousness, to walk in obedience to the Lord, to follow his example? To that, we would answer no. If you've refused baptism, if you've refused church membership, then you've not yet met that criteria, fulfilling all righteousness, being obedient to the Lord. I'm officiating three weddings this summer. Isn't it enough for those couples to simply covenant privately before God and to one another in their own hearts that they'll stick it out for better or worse, richer or poorer? I mean, there's nowhere in Scripture that says they have to get all dressed up and throw a big party in front of their, their family and friends and take formal public vows. But is it right and good for a couple who want to honor God in their marriage to do so? We would say yes. This is part of God's design in a wedding, in membership, in baptism. I was reminded of that hearing my own brother-in-law's testimony this morning. I was reminded my father-in-law's testimony when I got the, the privilege of baptizing him a year ago now, how after he was led to saving faith in his 20s, John felt like he was more or less abandoned, like an exposed infant Christian tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine because he hadn't been taught the importance the necessity of not only being grounded on the rock, on Christ. Remember, Jesus calls Peter the rock too. And I'm building my church on, on this rock, being grounded in a Bible-preaching church community. Brothers and sisters, this is what the church is. This, is. this is why the church is so important. This is what the church does for you. The church confirms, authenticates, establishes as genuine your faith, and then cultivates and grows your faith until we all attain to a mature faith, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Belong to the church. Number five, will we safeguard? Once that faith has been confirmed, will we safeguard it from cultural reappropriation, from syncretism all over again, from drifting away from the faith? Will we safeguard it? That's what the apostles did here in verses 18 through 24, or at least they attempted to do for Simon Magus. When he tries to buy the power to bequeath the Holy Spirit to others, he's already gotten the Spirit. This is an important point, important distinction. Simon already has received the Holy Spirit in verse 17, along with the rest of the, ch the church, when he, he, he believed in verse 13. Holy Spirit comes. But he wants the power now to pass it on to others. It's a spiritual gift. He wants the power that only the apostles had. Apostolic power. Now, in Simon's defense, he had probably paid 
for such power when he came to his former faith in dark magic and occult practices. He's, he'd probably paid someone. That's just kind of how business works in the world. Transactional. You want to be able to do magic tricks? Demonic, you know, like powerful, you know, not just exercise demons, but like send demons into people. I don't know what kind of powers he had. That He did wonders and signs that everybody believed him. I think he had real dark power. He probably bought it from somebody. And so this is just business as usual for him. But the Apostle Peter makes it clear here that once you come to Jesus, there is no more business as usual. There's no more going back. The old is gone. The new has come. Peter rebukes him. He says, may your silver perish with you. Idiomatically in Greek, he says, to hell with you and your money. And a lot of commentators take that and they think that Peter's rebuke here must mean that Simon was never truly converted. I would just encourage you this morning if that thought bothers you as it does me that I think those commentators must have missed the story about Peter himself when Jesus called him Satan get behind me Satan I don't know about y'all but if, if needing to be rebuked every now and again as a Christian is proof that you're not saved if still having a tendency to fall back into your old ways, your old sinful habits and patterns, is proof that you haven't been saved, if failure to be completely sanctified at the moment of your salvation is proof that you haven't been saved, then I, for one, am in trouble. I tripped going down the stairs to get in my car this morning and said some words that Christians aren't supposed to say, especially not pastors and especially not before they walk up in the pulpit. If that is proof that I'm not saved, then I'm in trouble. But thank the Lord that those commentators are wrong. Simon believed in verse 13. He believed in Jesus, my Savior, promised whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's the same verb. Same Greek verb, whoever believes. Simon believed. Didn't say whoever believes and never screws up again. Whoever believes and doesn't let a few four-letter words slip when they think they're about to hit their head on the concrete. Whoever believes and never drifts back into sinful habits, whoever believes and never tries to buy spiritual gifts, whoever believes, period. That's good news. Any sinners here this morning? That's good news for you. So how are we to understand Peter's rebuke then? When Peter declares in verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. He's not talking about salvation there. He's talking about the power to bequeath the Spirit onto others. Peter's exhortation of Simon to repent, verse 22, to be forgiven, verse 22, to be freed of your bond of iniquity, verse 23. I don't know about you, but that's a reminder I need every day. That's a reminder every sinner who just raised your hand, and even the ones who are too sinful to even raise your hand and be honest in church that you're a sinner, we all need every day. Repent and believe, be forgiven. That's why we publicly confess our sin every Sunday. It's because you're so sinful, you find new ways to sin every day, every week. Praise God, our sins there are many, but his mercy is more. 
And Simon's response in verse 24 sounds, to me at least, like the beginnings of a true repentance. Pray for me, son. Pray for me, Peter. Pray for me to the Lord. Like I, you know, some, some commentators point out, well, you know, he's asking for, for Peter to do. He's not, he's not even praying himself. He wants somebody. I don't know about you. When I feel so humbled, like I'm not even worthy to pray to God right now. Will you pray for me that nothing of what you have said may come upon me? What's the significance of this interaction? Peter is making sure here that the gospel is assured in Samaria. To assure can mean to secure, to confirm, to render safe and stable. Peter knows that the gospel is on shaky ground, rocky ground here in Samaria when the most influential guy in town just tried to purchase spiritual gifts. Not a good sign. By the way, this is where the practice of of simony comes from, named from Simon here. The, the buying or selling of ecclesiastical privileges, such as pardons or positions that eventually led to the Protestant Reformation to try and clean up the Catholic Church, comes from, from Simon here. But Peter rebukes him publicly in front of Samaria to assure, to secure, to render the gospel safe and stable from being reappropriated or syncretized back into Samaritan false worship. Peter says, you... If you try and add anything to the gospel, Simon, magician, you distort it. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It's not a gospel at all. Jesus plus spiritual gifts is not the gospel. Jesus plus supernatural powers to send the Holy Spirit is not the gospel. Jesus plus baptism is not the gospel. Jesus plus church membership is not the gospel. Jesus plus you trying to be a good little Christian boy or girl and please your heavenly father is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You come to Jesus with empty hands or you come not at all. And again, that's good news for you. You can lay down your striving this morning and come to him with empty hands be saved. Finally, number six, will we persevere? Will we persevere and see the gospel advanced in Samaria? Even when not everybody in Samaria, it it didn't come back, take no, it didn't come back and say from the least to the greatest, they all believe Philip. Even when, even when that person that you're ministering to in our Samaria doesn't respond, doesn't believe, not your job, it's God's job, leave it to him. Even when they don't, will you persevere? Even when you see people miraculously changed by the power of the gospel, apostles could have walked away from this and been like, well, you know, there's nowhere to go but down from here. I mean, it, to see someone like Simon the Magician, I don't know if you're basketball fans, this is like the and one basketball mixtape you know, moment when the, the 360 between the legs, behind the back, backflip dunk, when the whole crowd just, oh, and they come in, and, and that's the game over, game over. Whoever makes that dunk, they win, right? This is, this is and one, game over. Simon the Magician just believed and got converted to Jesus. They could say, our work here is done. What do they do? Return to Jerusalem, more work to do, preaching the gospel. In many villages of the Samaritans, they just keep preaching, just keep sowing. Will we persevere and see the gospel advanced in our own Samaria? What could be better? Where, where can we go? We're only in chapter 8. How does the story get any better from here? Come back next week and find out.